Let's pray together. Oh, God forbid now that we would believe anything or do anything or say anything that would ungrace grace. So protect my mouth and my mind, I pray, as I speak before your people. Let me speak only the truth. Let me speak it in humility and conviction. Let it be prophetically aimed at your appointed changes in people's hearts so that it penetrates and does a saving, strengthening, hope-giving, humbling, Christ-exalting work. Guard us from the evil one right now. We renounce Satan in all his ways and all his works. Claim the promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is what we do in the name of Jesus. I pray. Amen. So here we are back at Romans. Finally, after some time away, and I'm excited. We're at chapter 11, although we need to get oriented in this greatest of all books. I don't say that lightly. I think without fear of contradiction, I can say that in the history of the world, from beginning to end, all over the world, no letter has ever been written with more influence on the world than the letter to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul. I don't think anything else is even coming close by way of influence in terms of letters that have been written with impact on the history of the world like the letter to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul. And there are reasons for that. One reason is the Apostle Paul is writing as an authorized, commissioned, inspired spokesman for the risen, reigning Christ. He's an apostle. He was chosen before he was born. He was plucked out of a life of persecution and sin. He was transformed, turned upside down, oriented on God, and then God poured into him 13 letters on which he meant to build his church. And the second reason is that this, this letter has the fullest statement in it of any letter of the totality of the gospel. Martin Luther, let's just pick one example of people who have been blown away, transformed, turned upside down by the God they met in Romans. Martin Luther is one. And everybody knows, almost, that his great shift, his great turn, some of you see in the movie, I've heard good things about it, I hope to see it, so go there. He met God in Romans, and his whole life turned around, and with it the whole church, and with it the whole Western course of history, and here's what he said about the book. In this epistle, we find most abundantly the things that a Christian ought to know, namely, 
What is law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, righteousness, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, cross, and how we ought to conduct ourselves to everyone, be he righteous or sinner, strong or weak, friend or foe, even to ourselves. Moreover, this all ably supported with Scripture and proved by St. Paul's own example and that of the prophets, so that one could not wish for anything more. Therefore, he continues writing, therefore, it appears he, Paul, wanted this one epistle to sum up briefly the whole Christian and evangelical doctrine and to prepare an introduction to the entire Old Testament, for without doubt, whoever has this epistle well in his heart has with him the light and power of the Old Testament. Therefore, let every Christian be familiar with it and exercise himself in it continually. To this end, may God give His grace. Amen. Luther's Works, Volume 35, page 380. He said one more thing about it. I separated off to, to say, I, I say this with some hesitancy lest you feel crushed by it. Because <laughs> Luther had a way of saying things in a way that was excessive at times. And this one, a few of you will receive and move on. And the rest of you, I hope, will guilt-free not move on. This is what he said. The epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as daily bread for the soul. So, there it is, Luther's commendation of the book of Romans for you to memorize all 16 chapters of by heart. And a few of you have done that, and a few more now, having heard this, might undertake that for the next several years as your calling. It's a great letter. What we need to do as we move into chapter 11 is get oriented in 9 to 11, because chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a unit, a self-contained unit, following after 1 to 8 shedding light back on 1 to 8, as we'll see at the end of this message. And so, if you have a Bible and you'd like to get oriented with me, let's go to chapter 9 for two or three verses. As Paul breaks into Romans 9 to 11, writing for the church, he brings up a heartbreaking problem, namely that Israel, as far as he can tell, the great majority of Israel is rejecting her Messiah and is cursed, therefore, and cut off from Christ. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He could he would like to stand in their place because they are perishing, because they resisted Jesus. That is not the main problem. 
The main problem is a deeper problem revealed by that problem. What now becomes of God's faithfulness to His promises to Israel? What becomes of God's covenant faithfulness, His integrity, His trustworthiness? If Israel is just lost, what's the 2,000 years of working with Israel all about anyway? Are they just cast aside? Well, that's a massive problem for the Apostle Paul because it looks like he's not keeping his word and living up to his covenant with Israel. And so look at verse 6 of chapter 9 where Paul preempts that conclusion. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now that is the main statement of these three chapters. God's Word stands. And the rest of the three chapters is argument for that. And the argument proceeds in three steps. We've been two years on two of them. We'll be almost a year on the third one. Actually, it won't be almost a year. We'll be done by Easter. Lord willing. Step number one in the argument is found in verses 6 to 23 of Romans 9, and the essence of the argument is the word of God to Israel has not fallen, even though many Israel are accursed and cut off from Christ because the promise was made to spiritual Israel, not all of Israel by virtue of ancestry verse 8 of chapter 9. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. That is, it's not children who are by flesh Jews, but who are the children of God. The children of the promise are counted, counted as offspring. And the reason he's doing it this way, verse 11, is so that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So his first step in the argument to defend the trustworthiness of God in His promises to Israel, though many Israel are lost and cut off from Him, is that these promises were designed for the children of God within Israel. Not all Israel is Israel, verse 6b. And we spent a year on that, almost. Second step in the argument starts in verse 24 of chapter 9 and argues the Word of God has not fallen in His promises to Israel and the seed of Abraham because millions of Gentiles are included in it and are streaming into the kingdom. Verse 24, chapter 9. Even us, he's referring now to the vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Even us, whom he called not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. So the, the great mystery in the New Testament is that God's promises to Abraham and his seed include the Messiah who is the seed and everyone who is attached to the Messiah by faith 
whether they're Jew or Gentile, and therefore millions of Gentiles are becoming spiritual Jews by being united, united with the Messiah. United with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's step two in the argument. Now, today we come to step three, and we'll be here for several months. It begins in chapter 11, verse 1. Let me sum it up, and then we will look at a few things in the text, and then step back and ask why you should care about this at all. The third argument for God's trustworthiness and that His Word has not fallen, even though many in Israel are cursed and cut off from Christ, the third step in the argument is there's a remnant in Paul's day and our day of physical Israel, ethnic Israel, who believe in Jesus and are therefore in the promise. And this remnant will one day become a totality. That is, all Israel will be saved. I don't mean every Jew who's ever lived will be saved whether they believed in Jesus or not. I mean there's coming a day when the mass of Israel, Temple Israel, Hennepin Avenue, Temple of Aaron, Several million in Israel, even more in New York, will wake up and in a very short time the veil will be lifted, the hardness will be taken away, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, weep as for an only son, and a nation will be created in the day and they will become Christian Jews. Look at verse 25 of chapter 11. If this all sounds too quick to you, that's why we're going to take about 15 weeks on it. Chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. Now let me stop here and let that land on you because that's addressed to Gentiles. That's addressed to me. John Piper, Gentile. Johnny come lately in this affair, while olive branch grafted in to the tree of promise made to Abraham, while broken off natural branches, unbelieving Israel lies at the foot of the tree, and you're being grafted in, watch out, Piper. That's what this is saying. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, now just stop there and let that little until hit you. Do you feel the force of what that word means? There is a a hardening, a veiling, a misunderstanding reigning and prevailing in the Jewish people by and large. Not everyone, but by and large. And they're rejecting Jesus Christ as their Messiah until 
Who can talk like that? Who can say unbelief will reign until? One person can talk like that. The one who turns unbelief into belief. Nobody else can talk like that. There is a time appointed when the darkness, the veiling, the unbelief will cease. So let's finish reading. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's missions. You think missions is crucial for the end of the age? It is absolutely crucial. God has appointed a season of massive, radical, martyr-costing missions to gather in the fullness of the Gentiles. When that has happened, then, verse 26, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Hardening until and after hardening, softening, believing, seeing, loving, embracing Christ. That's what's coming. And that's step number three in the argument. The Word of God to Israel has not fallen. Which simply boggles the mind. Because it seems like the first two steps in the argument made that one unnecessary. If spiritual Israel is what counts, and the elect, and if Gentiles are streaming in to be participants in the spiritual Israel along with converted Jews, what need of this? Attention to ethnic Israel. So that's what we have to work on. It's there. When you come to the beginning of chapter 11, you don't jump right in here. He starts with the remnant idea, which we'll come back to next week in detail. And then he gets to verse 15. Look at verse 15 of chapter 11. If their rejection, now there is Israel here, if their being rejected, means reconciliation of the world. That is, the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in because a hardening has come upon, come upon Israel. That's what that's saying again. If their rejection means that we Gentiles now have faith in the God of Abraham and are participating in the promises made to Abraham and we have become true spiritual Jews and inherit all the promises made to Israel, What will their acceptance mean? And you don't even need the rest of the verse to see my point. My point is, up till a certain point, there's a rejection of Israel by which the Gentiles are blessed because we get included then. And then after that rejection comes acceptance. The third step in the argument of God's faithfulness 
that His Word to Israel stands is that one day, well first, that in Paul's day and our day, there's always a remnant. There has always been Jews for Jesus. Always there has been Jews for Jesus. For 2,000 years, there has been Jews for Jesus. And one day, that remnant of Jews for Jesus, whether they go by that title or not, will become a totality. Headlines in Tel Aviv will read, Massive Conversions to Jesus Christ by the million. Now that's a controversial position eschatologically and on this chapter and it will take some time to defend it. But I hope that you see the relevance of this chapter for our day. I'm not a politician and I'm not an infallible observer of the world. But I will venture a statement that I hear from various news sources and analysts that in the world today, 1.5 billion Muslims are in the world today. That's a lot of people. They do not like the existence of Israel. They do not like the infidels trampling the soil of holy Saudi Arabia. It's us. In the world today, the biggest political issue is what the world thinks about and acts toward that little people of Israel. That's the biggest issue. If the world blows up, it's going to blow up over Israel. And I say that without taking any particular political stand. In fact, I will go ahead and say, uh, I had a woman come up to me a few months ago, asked for clarification on my view, and said, I'm gone, and she's never come back, because I'm going to weave my way between, I hope, anti-Semitism and mindless support of Israel. I'm going to say things that Palestinian Christians will rejoice to hear, and I hope Jews will rejoice to hear. Because we evangelical Christians today are falling off the fence on both sides. We're falling off the fence on a knee-jerk support for everything Sharon does or says, as though he were a Christian. He's an unbeliever, hell-bound, out of fellowship with his Maker. And we're falling off on the other side of anti-Semitism historically. We do not have a good track record historically. Jews have rights to believe that they are being rejected, opposed, belittled, scorned. When's the last time you joked about Jewing somebody? Do you care? about the slurs in your language ethnically, whether it's black or white or red or Jewish. So I hope that what happens in these weeks together in Romans 11 is that God will come and He will instruct us to make nuanced, careful, balanced judgments.
biblically about Israel, about Palestinians, about Muslims, so that Christians can be known as people who will live and die for love of Jesus. We will not kill for love of Jesus. We will die for love of Jesus and for love of people, Muslim, Jew, and every other kind. Just a comment or so about our text. You're wondering, when are you going to get to verses 1 to 6? Well, answer, next week. But I do want to say one brief thing. Look at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? In other words, since they are cursed and cut off from Christ, and so many of them are rejecting the Messiah, have, has God rejected His people? And He answers, no, by no means. And then He gives His argument. And this argument, if you've been tuning in with me for the first two arguments, simply blows you away because you don't expect it to come. I didn't expect it to come. His argument is, God has not rejected His people because I'm an Israelite. I'm descended from Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. What's that? The reference to the tribe of Benjamin means, I'm talking ethnic Israel here, not spiritual Israel. The Word of God has not fallen. He has not rejected His people because I'm not rejected and I'm a Jew. That's the argument. I did not expect that because He had made so much out of spiritual Israel and He'd made so much out of Gentiles and now He's making much out of Jewishness. Hmm. Is that a contradiction? Well, stay with me and we'll work on it together. So here's where I want to close. I want to step back. We've got a lot of visitors here. We've got a lot of people who probably never showed up here. What in the world is this, you know? Uh, why are you talking about Israel? And I didn't even know that stuff was in the Bible. Uh, I want to close by asking the question, why should you come back? I mean, if you belong to another church, you shouldn't come back. Go there. But if you don't belong to any church, you might want to consider listening to the rest of this give you two reasons. And this really applies to everybody, Bethlehem folks and visitors. Why should we care whether God keeps His promises to Israel if we're not Israel? Two answers. Number one, if God doesn't keep His promises to Israel, He is not glorious. And if God is not glorious, He's not God. And if God is not God, I lose my treasure and I become a beast with animals like porpoises and monkeys. And all my love and all my affections become chemicals. And you know that's not true. No matter what university professor has told you otherwise, you know in your heart of hearts your love for people, your ache over a loved one, your standing beside a grave, your falling in love is not mere chemicals. You know it is witness to a dignity born of being created by the living God. You know that in your heart of hearts. And therefore, if God is not God, you're a beast 
and you lose your treasure and you know you're not a beast and you want your treasure and therefore you know good and well God keeps his promises. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable are his judgments. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be what? Glory forever and ever. That's where these three chapters end. That's verses 33 to 36 of chapter 11. That's where he's moving. It matters to the Apostle Paul that God be God and that God be glorious and therefore that God keep His Word to Israel and it ought to matter to you because you don't want to be a beast. Let the beasts be beasts and let man be man. Lastly, here's the last reason for why you ought to care about whether God keeps His promise to Israel. If He doesn't keep His promise to Israel, if He doesn't stand by His covenant to Israel, the way Paul is opening it here for us, then you can't count on His keeping any promise to you at all, especially the precious ones of chapter 8, which just precede this unit. Promises like, I mean, I know every single person in this room, believer or unbeliever, wants some of the problems, some of the promises of the Bible to come true for you. Like, I am persuaded that neither death nor life will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I tell you, I know what you're going to feel when you come to your deathbed. And the author of the universe or the doctor tells you, you've got about a day, given the way the toxic levels are rising. You are going to want to be able to know you're not going to be cut off from your maker in judgment and punishment, but have peace and come home with him and live in joy forever. That's what your heart is going to cry for in those days. And therefore, whether or not Romans 8, 38, and 39 are true, really will matter to you whether they do now or not. And that will hang on whether God is trustworthy. And if He doesn't keep His promise to Israel, He's not trustworthy. And therefore, your dying day hangs on this issue. Don't you want to be able to say with uh, Francis Ridley Havergal, who wrote, like a river glorious, what she said near the end of her 42-year life. Somebody showed her a book called Death, Dreaded by All. And this awesome saint who wrote that great hymn wrote this. I do not fear death. Often I wake in the night and think of it, look forward to it with a thrill of joyful expectation and anticipation, which would become impatience were it not for the fact that Jesus is my master as well as my Savior, and I feel I have work to do for Him that I would not shirk, and also that His time to call me home will be the best 
and right time, and therefore, I am content to wait. I tell you, I want to feel like that. I want to feel like that now, and I want to feel like that when the doctor says, a week, maybe? I want to be able to say, yes! Death is gain. But I will not be able to say that if God does not keep His promise to Israel. And lastly, just spread that out over all the promises you live by. I hope you live by promises. How else can you live? But by the promises of God. And so just to take one more in closing. Chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? If our house is burned up in Southern California, are we cut off from the love of Christ? If a parking lot falls on us in New Jersey, are we cut off from the love of Christ? If our son was on the Chinook helicopter this morning that went down and 13 Americans were killed and 20 were wounded, shot from a shoulder bazooka, has he or we been cut off from the love of Christ? If you heard that your mom this week has inoperable pancreatic cancer, are you or she cut off from the love of Christ? If you hired a babysitter and she came over and she was trying to move the TV away from the wall and your little nine-year-old son was creeping over and she didn't see him and the TV tipped over and crushed his head and he died two hours later in the emergency room, would you or he be cut off from the love of Christ? That's reality. And the answer is yes! If God doesn't keep His promises to Israel. This is big. This really matters to you. Oh, that you would see the seamlessness of the Bible and life. From Southern California to Baghdad, the promises of God are all we have in the end. And if He isn't a truth teller and a promise keeper, we are beasts. And life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And it isn't. So I close with this strong word from our text. God has not rejected His people. And therefore, God's a promise keeper. And He will not fail to fulfill every promise in your life that you trust Him for that is meant for your good. And therefore, you will be able to sing with Francis Havergal, like a river glorious is God's perfect peace over all victorious in its bright increase. Perfect, yet it floweth fuller every day, perfect, yet it groweth deeper all the way, stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed.